0: I remember as we were driving to the launch pad, especially my, my last crew in Atlantis, we were making silly jokes, acting like a bunch of school kids. And then we get in and you strap in, and then you wait. You don't really chit-chat too much because the whole world is listening. So you just got to sit there and, and wait on your back. Historically, on any given attempt to launch the shuttle, there was like a 50-50 shot it was actually going to go. And that could be because bad weather, it could be a technical problem. But then at the very end, they do this go no go poll where everybody at the consoles goes, booster. And he goes, go. Fido, go. You know, and once everybody says go, you suddenly realize that, oh, today's the day. Then the engine's like, Boo. it's kind of like a motion simulator ride. The shaking and the noise isn't like totally nuts. But what's unique are the g forces. It feels like you weigh about three times as much as you really do. You're lying down, and it feels like somebody is sitting on your chest. And it lasts about eight and a half minutes long. The engine shut off, and immediately you go from three Gs to zero. You put your arms up because it feels like you can get shot out of your seat. And then you feel really stupid because uh, you're just no longer being held down in your seat.
1: That was Garrett Reisman. He's been to space two times, which is exactly two more times than I have. And unless you're also an astronaut like Garrett, it's two more times than most of us Earthlings. We'll hear from him later in this very first episode of For All Mankind, the official podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Chris Marshall. I play astronaut Danielle Poole on the Apple TV Plus series For All Mankind. If you haven't watched the new episode yet, or you're completely new to the series, no problem. Stick with us. Head over to the show via the link in the episode notes after, because here, there are no spoilers. In each episode of this podcast, I'm going to speak with expert guests, including a space food technologist, a space anthropologist, and of course, the people who have gone beyond our atmosphere, real live astronauts we'll also have some incredible exclusive interviews with my fellow castmates and crew. In our regular biweekly episodes, we will delve into the realities and possibilities of space exploration, from basic space needs to lunar bases, from the early space race all the way to the modern day. And since this is the one and only official podcast for For All Mankind, as an extra special treat, we will also have separate bonus episodes with exclusive roundtable discussions to talk to our producers, creators, and cast about show themes and juicy behind-the-scenes moments. Spoilers are allowed in those, but don't worry, I'll give you a heads up. I gotta admit, before I got the part of Danielle Poole, I really didn't know a lot about space. Or the Cold War, which are kind of big ideas for season two. Thankfully, I have help. When my character flies in a spaceship or walks in a spacesuit on set, I get help from astronaut Garrett Reisman, who you heard from earlier. He's one of For All Mankind's technical advisors.
0: Woohoo! Hi, Chris. Wow, I'm honored to be the first guest on the podcast. That's really, really cool.
1: Garrett spent months on the International Space Station, and he's spacewalked three times. But like the rest of us, he started out as just a kid with a dream.
0: I loved airplanes. I loved rockets. I read every single book in my elementary school library about the subject. So I was always fascinated by stuff. But I never thought like I would do that as a job. And then what happened was, when I was in college, I got a hold of some of the bios of some of the astronauts that NASA had just selected. And that's when I had a, kind of my re- eureka moment when I realized, hey, maybe it's within the realm of possibility that this could actually happen. It kind of changed everything.
1: Fast forward to today, and Garrett is a veteran astronaut with a wealth of knowledge about how things really work and feel in space, which he brings to his work as a technical advisor on For All Mankind.
0: I was a big fan of uh, one of Ron Moore's earlier shows, which is Battlestar Galactica. And they asked me, like, are there any people down on Earth, any celebrities that you'd like to reach out to for like a morale boost while you're up in space? Because you're up there for, you know, three months. Mm -hmm. And I said, Ron Moore. So anyway, so we had this really cool video chat and then I got back to Earth and I got an invite from Ron Moore and he said, hey, you want to come on up to the set? We're filming the final episode of the final season of Battlestar. Do you want to come? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah. And it was awesome.
1: Garrett and Ron Moore stayed in touch over the years. And one day, Ron asked Garrett to come on board as a technical advisor for a new show, our show for all mankind. But what is a technical advisor? Before I started working on the show, I wasn't even familiar with what that even meant.
0: I don't know what it really means either. (laughs) So so it's interesting. I think the role of the technical consultant varies depending on what the executive producers want it to be. It can be as limited as, okay, here's a a bit of dialogue. We need to put some technical jargon, some mumbo jumbo in here that sounds right. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing about For All Mankind is that it's hard enough to get our audience to suspend their disbelief and buy into this whole alternate universe where geopolitical events are different, where, you know, the president is not necessarily the president. If the technical aspect is is wrong and clearly wrong, then it's even harder, I think, to maintain the suspension of disbelief. It's harder for the audience to buy into
1: it. Yeah. And I think from the perspective of an actor, it feels like you know, I don't know the first freaking thing about space. I mean, I was hired to do the job, not hired to fly anything. And so, knowing that there are people who know what they're talking about, it just gives you such a sense of like a safety net. Early on, I just tried to hold on to like, who is Danielle? What are the things that she loves? What does she want? And like, I will let the advisors tell me about the science and kind of hold on for dear life. <laughs> On set, Garrett really helps us look like astronauts, move like astronauts, and talk like astronauts in space. But thankfully, we don't end up feeling like astronauts. Now, don't get me wrong, I'd love to actually spin in microgravity, but Garrett tells me it's not all backflips and floating chocolate candies.
0: So there are things that happen that I expected. A lot of times during the day, we're either sitting or standing, and our blood volume kind of pools up in our legs because of gravity. But when you take gravity away, it no longer kind of pulls up down in our legs and the heart pumps too much and you get what we call a fluid shift and your head gets all puffy and swollen so i remember i woke up on my first night in space ever and i came out and i woke up in the middle of the night i mean why am i sleeping in a headstand <laughs> and then i looked out the window and i saw the earth and i'm like oh yeah i'm in space they told me this was going to happen but there are other things that were a bit more unexpected one one's um when you go to sleep at night and you close your eyes, you see little lightning flashes. Mm. And that's because of the increased radiation environment that you're in. And that's uh, some photons in your eyeball coming from those uh, charged particles. And so that's a little disconcerting. And actually you could tell what parts of the ship are better shielded. Because the number of flashes you see goes down when you go into the better shielded spots.
1: So there are some beds that are goodies and some beds that are baddies. Yeah. Do you guys fight over the bunks that have fewer <laughs> flashes?
0: Well, not necessarily because it's it's not the only concern. Like like the place that actually had the worst protection from radiation also had a window. And it was awesome having a window in your sleep compartment. So like mm-hmm. you could watch the sun set and then close the window and go to sleep and pretend like it's not gonna come back up in forty-five minutes. <laughs>
1: That is really cool. (laughs) As Garrett pointed out, as cool as the little lightning flashes are, radiation is a serious threat to space exploration. I'm going to play for you guys a quick clip from the first episode of season two. In this scene, the lunar base Jamestown is about to be pelted with a monster solar radiation storm. This is Jamestown Actual to all astronauts. We've got a solar storm coming in and it's a hot one. Talk to me about the sort of actuality of that, because it sounds like if we really were able to create habitation on the lunar surface, this would really be a potential problem.
0: Oh, yeah. Radiation is definitely the biggest challenge to safety when it comes to going either back to the moon or, or onto Mars or anywhere else. If you leave the Earth's magnetic field, which you have to do to go to the moon or beyond, then you're subject to two things. One is galactic cosmic rays, which are just everywhere everywhere. It's radiation that comes from a bunch of different sources throughout the universe, but it is just flying around out there. Mm-hmm. The other thing you worry about are solar events. So basically solar flares that create what we call SPE or solar particle events. Every once in a while, the sun spits out a whole bunch of really nasty radiation. It's not continuous but it's very intense for a short period of time.
1: So, I mean, for just the layman here, it's almost like making a pot of spaghetti sauce, and there are times when it's simmering, and then times when it bubbles up, and some of it comes out of the pot, right? Where it's just this sort of explosive moment.
0: Correct. If if the sauce it's comes out of the like pot, it's just
1: like that. <laughs> well, it was
0: a bunch of really highly charged particles that can kill you. Yeah. Then yeah, <laughs> it's then it's just like that.
1: We spoke with Erica Hatha. She's For All Mankind's researcher. She has a PhD in neuropathology, and she studied tumors and radiation. She helps interpret real science for the show's writers. On the show, the only sign of the radiation storm is that the regolith, or the moon dust, starts to dance off the lunar surface. Now, Erica, tell me, how real is this?
2: So during a solar flare event, and this is for the scene in our show where there's a boiling moon phenomenon, there is essentially a connection between solar particles charging up the regolith and a vaporized material that essentially is ejected from the surface of the moon. Essentially, the particles are going at such a high speed that they spark the soil and they vaporize it, sort of melt it like a little tiny lightning strikes. So that produces a very cool effect. It is cool. (laughs) I don't know how the audience would have known that there was any danger any other way. Mm -hmm. Have we actually seen this happening? I think scientists uh, have never really managed to sit there and observe it. It has been replicated in the lab, so we do know it does happen. It's suspected that this happens on a a very small scale over a very long period of time, which uh, causes the lunar regolith to actually move over time. Okay. So on the show, we've Pumped it up a
1: bit for a dramatic effect. I mean, I'm an actor. I get it. Dust, here's your motivation.
2: Oh, yes. One of the factors that went into that is that we don't actually know what would happen because we haven't actually been there to observe a very large solar flare. In reality, the, the process would be very, very slow over millennia, you know, and the, the scale of the little lightning strikes is very tiny, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, you know, astronauts did observe uh, levitating moon dust. Many of the Apollo astronauts noticed that uh, at the point at which the sun hit the moon, there would be streamers, sort of lunar dust was basically discharged into the air. And it rose actually hundreds of kilometers above the surface of the moon, which is quite extraordinary. Okay,
1: wow, that's wild. So maybe that's what Gordo was seeing on the moon
2: in season one. <laughs> no, but,
1: but seriously. I've heard that uh, real Apollo astronauts came so close to
2: being caught in the middle of a solar storm like the one that we have on the show in 1972. Did that happen? U.S. astronauts got very lucky. Uh, they narrowly escaped a real sunspot, <laughs> which uh, lasted uh, for a week, I believe. And it erupted several times. There was a record production of solar proton radiation. And, it you know, they were not shielded very well in their uh, capsules. So it, it could have been quite severe. They were very lucky. Totally get it. Space is out to get us. <laughs> but here on Earth... We're safe, right? So for the most part, the Earth is protected from solar events by a magnetic field. Most of the radiation is deflected but you know every now and then there's a very strong solar flare or essentially the magnetic field can't protect you completely. So sometimes satellites are disrupted in orbit, sometimes they can even fall. The flares cause radio blackouts and in fact we're we're kind of due for a super flare in the next hundred years or so, uh, a big one that can wipe out technology as we know it and possibly cost trillions of dollars in damage. So that's on Earth. On the moon, there's no atmosphere or magnetic field. So it's just radiation swirling all around, which is not good, especially if you get caught in a big storm far from a lunar base. For astronauts, uh, you know, there would be genetic consequences on the small scale. You know, it might not be that damaging. But, uh, for example, 300 REMs in an intense solar flare might kill you.
1: In episode one of season two, two astronauts are caught unprotected out in the radiation storm on the moon's surface. Molly, this is Ellen. The storm is seconds from impact. All communication will be disrupted, so you and Wabu need to remain in place. Repeat, remain in place until you have received the all clear from me. Garrett told me that this is all very real and that radiation is a constant concern for space travel. I was reading about the uh, all-female spacewalk that happened. So for those women, is it especially dangerous for them to be out on the surface of the vehicle because they are no longer protected? Or is it still low enough density that these women are not exposing themselves to major radiation?
0: Well, you know, male or female, either way, when you go outside to do a spacewalk, you are at greater risk of radiation because you're not as protected as well by the suit as you are by by the hull of the vehicle. So when you're outside, you definitely take a higher dose of radiation, but you're not, you are not—you don't spend a whole lot of time outside. I was up there, my grand total time in space, I spent 107 days. And of that 107 days, I did three spacewalks, each just over seven hours. So I, about one of those 107 days, I was outside.
1: And what's that for us here on Earth? Is that the equivalent of getting five x-rays? I mean, how much is that?
0: I think the total of dose that I took up there... It was like a couple of chest x-rays worth,
1: if you will. Okay.
0: So relatively mild, really. But, you know, even though it was only one out of 107 uh, my time outside, the percentage of the radiation I absorbed was greater than one over 107 because you get more when you're outside. Right. And so what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take your dosimeter. Mm Mm-hmm. Which we kinda, Which we have
1: in our stories. That's a real yeah. aspect, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, so you take that with you in your suit and you put it in your pocket before you get into the suit. So you measure it outside as well as inside. But there is a gender component to that. That's this.
1: what I was thinking because we have a lower bone density,
0: right? It, it's actually your ovaries. Really? Yes. So because... Wow. So we all get, you know, the same dose of radiation uh, that we're exposed to. So basically, you know like how much energy your your tissues absorb. But then you gotta figure out, okay, well, what does that energy do to different organs in your body? And then you multiply it by a certain number to give you the equivalent dose. And it turns out that when you figure out the parts of the body that are sensitive to that radiation, there are things that both men and women have that are sensitive, like our brains. Mm-hmm. But then there are things that women have that men don't have, uh, which ovaries in, in particular, that are sensitive to radiation. So if you figure out, for example, for a certain dose of radiation, what's the percent probability over the rest of your lifetime that you will develop cancer as a result of that exposure? If you're the same age but female, you actually have a slightly higher risk than if you're the same age and you're male. So there is a gender disparity there.
1: And is there any effort to sort of thwart that, the way that when you're at the dentist and they make you wear that heavy metal jacket? Is there something like that that women wear around their waists, like a, a, a lead Waste center?
0: Uh, it would be too difficult to do that for the spacesuit, but they came up with a vest, and I think for women also, like
1: an underwear kind of underwear, thing. Underwear, yeah. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, that that protects the individual. It's like a, it's almost like wearing armor. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that for both men and women, actually, the most sensitive thing is the brain, and and nobody wants to wear like a big armor helmet uh, the whole time they're up in space. So. It's a little tricky to make this work. So most of the approaches we take are actually just to shield the entire room and and try to cut down the total radiation inside the vehicle the best we can.
1: You know, what I think is really cool about our show is that the NASA aspect and the life on the moon, all of that is incredibly important. But what's also so important is, like, the real stories and these real people and their real love for each other, hate for each other, confusion, misunderstandings, unmet expectations, loss, grief. Like, all these things are as real as if they were right here on Earth.
0: Well, that's what's so great about the writers on the show is they, they put so much excellent story into each episode. So, yeah, what I've enjoyed most about the job is, is actually not the technical stuff. I think what I enjoy the most is when something I, either as a, an idea or even stuff that I write ends up mm-hmm. in the script. And I hear one of you bring to life something that I wrote on a piece of paper. It is such an incredible feeling. I remember sitting there once right next to Matt Walport, or one of our executive producers, when this happened. And, and I turned to him, and I got all tingly, you know. And mm. I said, so you've been doing this a long time. You're really good at it. Does it still kind of freak you out when you see it come to life? And he's like, yeah, it never <laughs> gets old. I get the tingly feeling every time, too. And and it's, it's so cool. And again, that's an experience that normally in my life I would never, ever have.
1: Thank you, Garrett, so much for being on this show. My pleasure. This is it. This is our maiden voyage, our first episode. I can't believe we made it. Woo-hoo. I just, I think the world of you. I'm so grateful that we have you to steward our ship and make sure that we stay in line with what's real and what's not. So, yeah, thank you. I want to thank our guests, Garrett Reisman and Erica Hatva. Join us in two weeks for another episode of For All Mankind, the official podcast. I'll be talking about stress, both in space and on Earth, with space anthropologist Jack Stuster. This is Chris Marshall, safe and sound Earthside. Thanks for listening to the For All Mankind podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed. And watch For All Mankind on Apple TV+, Plus where available. This has been a production of Apple TV+, and At Will Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati. Produced by Chris Marshall, Ashley Taylor, and Patrick Farrell. And associate producer, Dominique Ibeque. Production coordination by Latavia Young. Sound designed and mixed by 1,000 birds. Sound editing by Rachel Leitner and Nick Stargue, with assistance from Andrew Holzberger, Jamie Katsoufis, and Jake Young.